Well, if you have your Bible with you or you'd like to use one in the back of the pew in front of you, turn with me to the gospel according to Mark chapter 15. For the second to last time, turn to the gospel of Mark chapter 15. This morning we will finish the chapter reading verses 40 to 47. If you're a guest with us, we have been spending much time in the book of Mark. I think we're close to 70 sermons in on the book of Mark, watching Jesus on the move as Mark teaches us what it means to follow him and be a part of his kingdom. Last week, we hit the apex in the passion of Jesus and the death of Jesus on the cross and what the message of that death means for us. And today, we will visit the tomb And consider the burial of Jesus and what that means for us. With all that in mind, let's read Mark chapter 15, verses 40 to 47. This is the word of the Lord. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they, that's the women, followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Imagine you wake up one Sunday morning and realize you have slept through the entire day of Saturday. You went to bed on Friday night and woke up on Sunday morning. I think for a lot of us, that would be terrible. And we would just immediately groan with disgust. My kids would miss out on all their Saturday favorites. The things they get to do on Saturday that they don't get to do during the school week. Some of us would, in one sense, feel frustrated. Maybe we'd feel thankful that we didn't get the day where we were supposed to get our yard work done or the chores around the house, the errands we need to run around town. In our normal day-to-day life, we, we have to have Saturday. We need Saturday. It's vital for our, our day-to-day life, right? Is, is there anybody here that could just do away with Saturday? Tell me how you do that. But when we read the gospel, it's reverse. 
I think a lot of us, as we read the gospel and talk about the gospel, we think about Good Friday, and we think about Easter Sunday, but we just skip right past Saturday. Now, everything that's happening in this passage is Friday night, because on Saturday it's the Sabbath and they can't get any work done, but what happens on Friday night leads to Saturday, where Jesus stays buried. And you know what happens on Saturday? Nothing. And I think that's why a lot of us just skip past this fact, as if it's not important. Brothers and sisters, just like it is vital for our day-to-day experience, Saturday is a must in the gospel. Brothers and sisters, what I want you to know and to be able to take home is this. You never get to Sunday without first going through Saturday. You don't get Easter. You don't get the hope of the resurrection until you deal with the fact that they buried Jesus. He had a tomb to rise from because Jesus died for us. We're going to do something a little bit different. Usually I walk very systematically verse by verse, but today I want to take the whole passage and give you six truths that we can take from the burial of Jesus. I want to show you why this matters to you and me. First truth, brothers and sisters, Jesus really died. Jesus really died. About 25 years ago, when I was in middle school, news broke that shook my Atlanta area community, or at least the middle school I was in. Tupac Shakur was dead. The hip-hop artist who had been in a feud with the East Coast rappers, had been shot down. But for basically the rest of my life, no one believed it. Forever, everyone proclaimed that Tupac was still alive. It was all a cover-up. He was hanging out in Jamaica, chilling with the Marleys. One day, Tupac's coming back. Well, 25 years later, that still hasn't happened. And I think most people are sure that Tupac is dead. Somebody somewhere thinks he's still alive. This passage is proof that Jesus died. Already, immediately after this, people were creating conspiracies that Jesus was Tupac. Somewhere in Jamaica, just chilling. That he never really died in the first place and came back. That was the resurrection. He just came back. He woke up. Friends, Mark is giving all of the detail here as a death certificate for Jesus Christ so that you can have confidence that it really happened. That's why Mark, you'll see in the passage, verse 40 and verse 47, he sandwiches the passage beginning and ending with the women who witnessed it all. That's important for at least two reasons. These women are going to show up in Mark 16 as eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And because they were there on Friday, they know exactly which tomb Jesus was laid in. They didn't make a mistake, show up to the wrong tomb on Sunday, and make up this idea that Jesus rose again. But the second reason this is so important 
is because if Mark is making this story up, he's doing it wrong. And the reason for that is the way women were were recognized and treated in the first century. As Mark Strauss writes, women were not viewed as reliable witnesses and could not even testify in court. Because of this, the early church would never have invented stories in which women were the main eyewitnesses. If Mark is making this up, Peter would be the one to see it all. James and John would be the ones to witness it all. But there's more than just the women who witness it. There's another lead key witness to testify to this good news. Joseph of Arimathea, who is a Jewish leader, a member of the Sanhedrin, the council that led to Jesus' trial and crucifixion. Another unlikely witness to support the fact that Jesus rose again. But if that's not enough, Mark brings out an expert. An expert in crucifixion, an expert in what death looks like. Pilate can't believe that Jesus has really died, so who does he call in? The centurion. And as we mentioned last week, this guy has been to thousands of crucifixions, maybe in a single day. He knows how to check a pulse. He knows what somebody who has breathed their last looks like. And then Pilate, the ruling authority, grants, Mark says, the corpse to Joseph. That word in the Greek is important. It could have been just the regular word for body. But Mark used the more vivid term corpse to emphasize what happened to Jesus. Why are we going to such great lengths about this? You might be asking that. Because, friends, this is crucial to our salvation. If Jesus doesn't really die, you do not have a gospel. If Jesus was just asleep on Saturday and woke up on Sunday, there's no point in being here, and no one is saved. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 4, Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what matters more than anything, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Notice what he included second in there. Then in verse 17, as Paul's arguing for the resurrection, he says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, you're not forgiven. There's no such thing as grace. But resurrection is step two. This might seem basic, but friends, this truth matters, and it's one to take home. Before you can rise again, you have to die. And if Jesus did not die, you are dead in your sins and not forgiven. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus really did. Second truth, so will you. Jesus really died, and brothers and sisters, 100% of this room will die too, unless Jesus comes back. 
You better believe when I was a kid, my parents didn't let me listen to Tupac. At least when they knew what I was listening to. The only thing we would listen to in the car were what we called oldies. And if they were oldies back then, what are they even called now? There was a song, I think it was by the Turtles, kept me up at night. It's called Turn, Turn, Turn. Every season under heaven, a time to live and a time to die. Oh my goodness, I remember. My parents would turn on oldies for me to go to sleep to, and that song came on one night, and I panicked. I started crying in my bed and ran to my parents and said, I don't want to die. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is where that song comes from. Verses 1 to 2, Solomon, the wisest man, wrote, For everything there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, and a time to die. In the New Testament, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, that doesn't change. The writer of Hebrews writes in chapter 9, Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Just this week, police vehicles, firefighters, ambulances, the whole nine running through my neighborhood. You know, first thought is someone in their retirement age, country club members, maybe. No, it's a father of five younger than me, had a heart attack and died. Whether you're the youngest kid in this room or the oldest person in this room, you will die. And that ambulance will come for you. Are you ready for that? Or will this truth keep you up at night crying that you don't want to die? Moses wrote Psalm 90, verse 12, Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Moses said, God, help us to know the ambulance will come and help us to act right. Friend, if you are living apart from Jesus Christ who died for you and rose again, you need to act with wisdom by turning to him. He is the only way, the only truth, and the only life that will give you a hope after the grave because he rose from the grave. The wages of sin is death because of the way that you have rebelled against God in some manner because you have disobeyed at some point. The wages, the paycheck for that is death for everyone. But the gift is that God rose Jesus Christ from the grave so that if you turn from that and put your trust in Jesus, He will give you eternal life and resurrection. 
And the way to act with wisdom is to take that opportunity today because you don't know if the ambulance is coming for you tomorrow. Hear the word of the Lord and turn to Christ right now. And friends, some of us belong to Jesus, but we act like we got a whole lot of time and we can live however we want. Number your days and act with wisdom. Jesus really died, and so will you. The third truth we find in this passage, a little more uplifting, is that God never stops working. Even on this day, God never stops working. If you think about it, this is the only sermon out of 70 where the sermon series title doesn't fit. For this day, Jesus is not on the move. Jesus is dead, doing nothing. If you visited this tomb late on Friday or you broke the rules and visited it on the Sabbath, you would see nothing and hear nothing out of the ordinary. Just a normal graveyard. Just another tomb. And you'd probably think to yourself, nothing to see here. It reminds me of the book of Esther. Israelites are threatened with genocide by the Persian king. And Esther boldly approaches the king without permission, which could get her killed. And because of her bravery, the people of Israel are spared from the genocide. And the wicked mastermind behind it all is the one who faces death. But did you know, if you study, read the book of Esther, God is not mentioned one single time. And if you just looked at it with earthly eyes, you'd think nothing is happening here. But Mordecai tells Esther at the, the turning point of the book in chapter 4, verse 14, he says, if you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? You know what's behind that question? A faith that God is still working. Whether it's through Esther or not, Mordecai says, God's not going to stop working for his people. And God has brought you here right now to do something for his kingdom. And what was true for Esther is true for every character in this story. For such a time as this, the women and Joseph of Arimathea and Pilate and the centurion are here because God is on the move. God is working. Now let me just take it right to you. Think about how we talk in church life. Think about the way you share about things going on in your life. When do you use the phrase, God is moving? Or God really moved in this? When does that happen? Isn't it 100% of the time, things like coming back from a mission trip and sharing and seeing really cool things happen in a foreign place? Isn't it always after a Sunday where every pew was packed 
and the songs were powerful and the message was inspiring. Isn't it when we've been on our knees for such a long time and finally an answer to our prayer comes? Is that only when God moves? Is that truly when God moves? Friend, God is bigger than that. Hear this and apply it to the Saturdays of your life. God is working when you are asleep in bed. God is working when the church is empty. God is working when the songs don't move you and the sermon's not inspiring and you're barely staying a week awake. God is working when your prayers don't feel like they're answered and it even seems like God's given you the opposite. Our ability to see or hear or even feel the moment does not dictate when God is at work. If that's what dictates when God is at work, our emotions are God. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I don't know what's going on in your life and what you're struggling with, but the good news of the gospel is even when it feels dead, God's still working. Two more truths that I want to show you together. God can use anyone but he doesn't need anyone. God can use any person in this room, but he's not begging. He doesn't have to have anyone in this room. Notice in this passage who's not around. We've heard from the women, Joseph of Arimathea, the centurion, and Pilate, but there's some uh, missing suspects. Jesus, we've spent 70 weeks or so. Jesus spent three years training 12 young men to be the next generation for his kingdom, to take the lead. And one day they're going to. There is a book of Acts. But right now, on this day, at this hour, in Mark chapter 15, verses 40 to 47, where are they? Peter, James, John, on and on. Right now, God's not using any of them to make this happen. They don't even get named in the rest of the book. Who does he use? He uses a man who belonged to the Sanhedrin of all people, the group who orchestrated Jesus' death, This guy breaks from his party. There's a lesson right there. He breaks from his own group of friends, his co-workers, his party, and he takes a huge risk. He goes to the self-centered governor who only plays things by the book to, to keep his office, and he asks for the body of the man that was sentenced to die. Usually, The Romans just let people who were crucified rot and decompose in the street. They weren't afforded a grave at all. Pilate easily could have done that. 
But God moves in this wicked king to grant Joseph's wish. And then there's this group of faithful women watching it all, whose testimony will really matter at the beginning of the church. What, again, does this mean for you and me? A a piece of good news is one thing, is that when it looks like everybody's against God, and it really has since Friday, after all that's happened to Jesus, after all the crowd has chanted crucify, after the Sanhedrin has put this innocent man up to die, and the kings let it happen, it looks like there's no one still living for the Lord. But Mark tells us that this man in the Sanhedrin was looking for the kingdom and goes and, and seeks out a way to serve the Lord. Friends, even when it looks like no one is with you, when no one believes in the Lord, when the whole world is turning back, God still has a remnant. If you look like the only person who follows the Lord at school, the only person who follows the Lord in your work office, in your family, what if you're the only person left in Carl Junction who still follows Jesus? He still has a people. But to bring it just to a personal level, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't matter your economic bracket. It doesn't matter your education. It doesn't matter your skill set. God can use you. You don't even have to be a believer. How's that for a worldview wake-up call? God used Pharaoh in Egypt to do his will. God used Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon to do the same thing. God used Cyrus and Persia to bring his people back. Have you ever considered that God might be using the lost people in your life to do what he wants to do? Is that even possible in your view of God? But if you belong to Jesus, it's even more true. Tenfold. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, Paul says that all these gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. At an individual level, not at a corporate level, God looks at every single believer and decides exactly how he wants to use that person in his church, in his kingdom, and gives them a specific gift to use, not in their strength, but in his strength for the glory of his name. And friend, if you've turned to Jesus, you've repented of your sins, and you've, you've been brought into his family, he doesn't give any child no gifts. Every child gets a gift at the new birth. And I don't know what it is for you, but God's given you something as he wills, to use for him. And he can use you no matter what you think about yourself. But some of us think a lot about ourselves, And that's why it's also important to say, whoever you are, God can use you, but whoever you are, God doesn't need you. Acts chapter 17, verse 24 to 25. Paul's defending the resurrection and says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He doesn't live in this house. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life 
and breath and everything. Why is it worth saying? Why do we need to hear this? We serve God long enough. We serve God well enough. We start to think that we're essential. That this ministry, this class, this effort won't happen if I'm not here. If I don't get the job done, no one will. Friend, no matter how gifted you are, no matter how gifted I am, you and I are not essential. If God chooses to use us, it is for His glory. And if God chooses not to use us, it is for His glory. The story doesn't change. And friend, if you need to hear that, there's a freedom in that. You can let go a little bit. You can invest in someone else who will take over for you down the road. You can let God do what God can do and not worry so much about what you can. Some days it's going to be obvious how he uses us, and some days it's going to feel like everything's done. It's all over, and the momentum is dead. It did on Saturday. Friend, I got one more truth for you. The story isn't over. Y'all aren't with me. The book of Mark doesn't finish at chapter 15. The book of Mark has one more chapter because the story of Jesus isn't over. As one pastor said, Sunday is coming. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54 to 58. Hear the good news of the gospel. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So then what? Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul closes this hallmark chapter of the New Testament to say, because the resurrection is true, wake up, get up, and keep working. It doesn't matter what your life looks like. It doesn't matter what your ministry looks like. It doesn't matter what your problems look like. The resurrection is true. To keep on moving. The story isn't over. Friend, Jesus really died, but the story isn't over. You will really die, but the story isn't over. God never stops working because the story isn't over. He can use anybody. The story isn't over. But he doesn't need anybody. The good news is the story isn't over. Friend, if you have died with Christ, your story's still going. He's still got another chapter. Jesus is coming back. So one way or the other, the story isn't over. Friend, what is the obstacle in your life that you can't see past? What feels impossible? 
what looks too big for you, for your family, for your life, for your kids, for this church, for this community, for this country, for this world. What is it? Friends, the resurrection is true. The story isn't over. And there will be a Sunday. But before you get to Sunday, you got to go through Saturday. We want to rise again. We got to die first. But thank God Almighty, the story isn't over. Let's pray.